It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. And today we're speaking with a friend of our program, uh, Dr. Paul White, professor of social psychology at the University of Utah. And basically, this is going to be a bit of a rant session because there's so much happening that uh, each of us has uh, some things that we want to talk about. And so we're each going to take one segment uh, to kind of uh, give our thoughts on a particular subject. And then at the end, we hope to offer some solutions to some of the issues that we bring up during our discussion. But I want to say thank you, Paul, for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for inviting me back. And um, I am going to start with, um, so I, there's just, uh, I had a tough week this week. Uh, this, uh, a couple of days ago was very tough for me because I, um, I go through with uh, social media and, and I see various, uh, you know, kinds of posts. And the one that kind of jumped out at me there's a police officer who, uh, in New York City, who, hello, am I gone? Yes, I am. All right. Shoot. No, I can hear you, Jace. Oh, yes. I, that I can hear you. Yeah. yeah. I just oh, muted myself. Yeah, I just myself. Yeah. And I, just, myself. Yeah. And oh, I, okay. I muted myself, too. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to start that over again. Okay. Okay. Sorry. So this week, I had a tough week. Uh, on uh, Tuesday, I was going through social media, and I saw a, a video from a I guess it was a guy from New York. He was a police officer. And he's, uh, behind him are a group of officers who were, you know, standing, uh, you know, kind of in solidarity because he was upset at the way he believes uh, police officers, not just mostly in New York in this case, because there was a lot of protesting going on there, but uh, around the country. And these protests are in these cities, uh, obviously due to the um, egregious death of, uh, of uh, George Floyd by officers in Minneapolis. And now we've We've got what is now hopefully becoming a movement to have uh, significant and substantive police reform in places around the country, including here in Salt Lake City. And this fellow was uh, really, really upset about the fact that he uh, he was tired of people uh, wearing uniforms uh, and being police officers being called thugs and animals, which are exactly the uh, the, the uh, descriptors and adjectives that they use to describe us, us being black and brown people all the time. And he was being righteously indignant, saying that they don't deserve this and, you know, people should, you know, they should consider what they're saying and, and that they, you know, they, they do this job and they, you know, they're, they're not what uh, they're being characterized as. And there are plenty of videos this week and images of police officers being, at the very least, unnecessarily forceful with peaceful, uh, otherwise unarmed protesters in cities around the country, including in New York, where there are there is video of two New York City police vehicles, marked vehicles, literally running down unarmed protesters in the streets of New York City. And 
I, I'm even right now. I just, I, if, if I were a volcano, my head would have exploded already. I don't understand how officers of any kind are allowed to uh, literally run down officers. And, and offline, I was uh, speaking with Paul, and he mentioned that that's just that's no different than what happened in Charlottesville when uh, uh, Heather got um, Hyde or Heidelis. I'm I, forgive me for forgetting her name, but she was run down by some nut job who was part of the uh, you know demonstration, uh, the opposition demonstration of those racists. And she was killed. And this, in this situation, nobody was killed, but certainly they, there was uh, potential for that to have happened. And as police officers, they would certainly know that they were driving a vehicle. And there are so many other images of police officers using batons and punching and kicking. And uh, in Buffalo, there was a 75-year-old uh, man who had been a housing advocate that all officers knew. He walks up to police. A guy pushes him down. He falls down to the ground. His head is open bleeding, and he ends up going to the hospital in very serious condition. And he was pushed for nothing. And somehow, after that, when these two officers who were involved in that were suspended, like 60 other people who were involved in uh, what it was for the protest It was the actually 50, 57 unit. members of that of the unit. unit. They, uh, they, they, they walk the off unit. the job. They didn't That's walk right. off the they job. Did, they walk off the, off that they, unit, right? They didn't yeah. walk off the job. They just, I'm not going to do this anymore. As if to say, these people shouldn't have been suspended. This guy is on the ground. And if you watch this video, the, the person who uh, did it decides he thinks he wants to walk over and look at him. But then another guy pushes him away from that. So that he is standing there with no help. With uh, blood flowing out of his head. The, the, the notion that these officers somehow think they are supporting otherwise upstanding police officers when all that person was was a violent criminal who not only used his position uh, inappropriately to, to actually assault another person, another fellow human being, a citizen of, the, uh, of Buffalo, but it was a 75-year-old guy. That guy is a coward under any circumstance, under any circumstance. And I would suggest the same thing of the people who were driving in that car in New York City, wearing that badge and running over uh, other uh, citizens. I am sick and tired of the police taking the victim role here when they are in all the cases we're talking about now, the perpetrators. Well, and they have control of not just the, I mean, some would say the media has control of the narrative, but they have control of these situations. They can choose when to come out in riot gear or when to come out and um, have a picnic instead of a march, right? So we've seen these varying degrees of engagement with police where police have said, we're going to march with you. We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to kneel with you. We're going to kneel mm -hmm. with you. We're going to. So they get to be the ones to decide. The people obviously have control over their own behavior or whatever. But the older gentleman that you referred to, I mean, people are now uh, uh, asserting this conspiracy theory that um, he was scrambling their radios with his cell phone and he had a bag of blood <laughs> okay, and right. he's not really You're... hurt. You know, it's Paul, You're... you want to jump in? Well, because you were, you were saying people. <laughs> Yeah. And let's be clear, well, it's, it's not, not just people, yeah. it's also the president, president of the United States mm -hmm. who helped do this. One of the things with the with the Buffalo situation, I, we, I got to see an interview the next day, on, or yeah, I think or day two later, on Rachel Maddow's show um, with the mayor of Buffalo. And I was appalled at his responses too. 
because he kept he was trying to make he was saying well this unit they're designed to you know they they were told to clear out the area they're they're going to clear out the area they're they're trained to just keep moving there are there were medics embedded in this unit so that if anything happened the med- and he kept saying that there was somebody who was treating this person within seconds which is a lie which yeah and and plus and that's I'm glad you said lie because that was part of it too was the buffalo police department came out with a statement to the thinking the media to the media saying one person was arrested here and another person tripped and fell. Yeah, that was the original the statement. Vid- yeah. yeah. And yeah. then the video came out and then they said, oh, well, we, um, oops. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So cover up right away, right? Yeah. Yep. See, again, this is, this is dishonoring the badge. We're not doing this. This is, these are the officers themselves. These are the people who are sworn to be peace officers behaving like the thugs and the animals that they are supposed to be able to protect us from. They have become what they claim to hate. But then when we call them on it, they somehow are want to become uh, righteously indignant with us as if to say, we're not that, we're just, we're trying to protect people and, 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 and uh, you know, keep order. Mm-hmm. There are ways to keep order. And I would suggest that the way it was done in Salt Lake City, which I was in, on, I was watching this, I mean, I wasn't on the front lines, I'm, I'm, I'm standing next to the police officers who are on the front lines because I, I don't have any riot gear on. They're all dressed in riot gear. They did not escalate when uh, cars were set on fire. Two of them, by the way, and I was w- watching one of them. When, when guys with people were throwing rocks and, and bottles of water at them, they did not react. They figured out a way to de-escalate the situation. And each day, the, uh, the angst and the anger from the protesters diminished. So where it became, because there's always just a few of them. And then the actual protests, which were nonviolent, which were peaceful, which had a message, they were able to continue day after day after day, and they have still continued. That's the way you're supposed to behave, not like thugs and animals that we've watched so frequently around the country with pepper spray and batons and, and literally assaulting other citizens. I am done now, and, I, and, I, and we've gone a little long, so I have to uh, bring this segment to an end. And I want to thank you all for, uh, uh, what do you call it? indulging me and allowing me to get this off my chest. Now I don't have to go to therapy. So uh, we're going to continue our, 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 our discussion about the situation that's happening as America uh, starts a movement to hopefully uh, really, really uh, create and have police reform so that we have uh, a country that is, that is fair and equitable to all of us. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. 
Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're speaking with Dr. Paul White, professor of social psychology at the University of Utah. And we're talking about kind of the circumstances with uh, our country demonstrating uh, against uh, police brutality and uh, just violence in general uh, against black and brown people around this country, obviously sparked by the tragic death of uh, George Floyd in uh, Minneapolis. He was actually laid to rest uh, just uh, a day or two ago. So uh, for me, I talked about what I thought was kind of the notion that officers uh, feel as though they're being persecuted when it seems to me quite the opposite uh, uh, when it comes to being the victims in this case. Uh, Paul, what did you want to uh, discuss? Well, along those kind of keeping along those lines, one of the things that you hear so much is that it's just a few bad apples, um, that it's just a few rogue cops, that it's just a few uh, people within the within the police department that is the racist, that is the sexist, that is the wanting to abuse the power. But it does not. Even if you if you go with that idea. It does not t- change the system. It does not change the institution. It does not talk about that there are policies, that there is a culture. Even if you change the policy, there's a culture that can perpetuate the, the, the abuse, the brutality uh, that is done. Jason, you were talking about what happened with in Buffalo and that situation with you know, that unit, the, yeah, that unit just marching on, marching on, especially the one guy wanting to lean down and help and look, and you had someone else jerking him back. Right. And to me, that was as, almost as, as egregious as the pushing the person down. Um, with George Floyd, you had the cop on his neck. But you had three other police officers, especially the, and I'm blanking on the name, the Asian American police officer who was standing there and telling the people to stop filming, to not inter, you know, not intervene. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it's not just one or two bad apples. Um, I heard, I, 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 so let me ask you something, Paul. Let me, let me uh-huh. throw something into your bad apple theory. I just wonder um, if people who say, I've heard this a couple times, nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop, right? And I I think that um, the bad apple theory doesn't hold water for me anymore because um, we, we, because what happens is if a cop gets accused of something, it's like they circle the wagons and it seems like they will defend any behavior at any cost. And that to me is what sort of undermines their discussion and and the other thing is that you know I as you guys know my dad is a cop my sister is a police officer I have three brothers-in-laws that are in law enforcement and I think that um one thing I would say is I think there's somebody who doesn't like a bad cop more than a good cop and that is the the subject the person who's being right yeah the, if you didn't exactly by it, I gotta say I, I hate him more than yeah. they do yeah. yeah. So no, I, you're right. But I you're right that, that they, yeah, that they rally around because, and that's what I mean by the culture. Yeah. It's that it's not just it's it's structural. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the you know the you rally around the blue line, you mm-hmm. close in ranks. Um, the those people cheering those in Buffalo, those people cheering in Philadelphia with the other. I think it was yeah, it was Philadelphia was another cop that mm-hmm. um, was accused and on video showing things. And when he's coming out, they're cheering and clapping. And in fairness, um, we've seen some officers step up and do something about a bad situation. There was a female right. black officer who got after a cop for pushing him down. Yeah. Right. So you've seen these, but I wonder at what cost do they, like we don't get to know how they're received by their ranks afterwards, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I that's just that's about that. that's what and that's part of what I mean by it's being the structure. Mm-hmm. Um because, and here's the the clear example, and I and I specifically say policy. In New York City, with the the police department had a ban on chokeholds, and that was in the early nineties. Ninety three. But Eric, but Eric Gardner still died of a chokehold, and you had the police leaders, the police union, people upset with the medical examiner who actually said this was a chokehold because they were saying you're. You're politicizing this. You're editorializing this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a chokehold. We saw what happened. It was a chokehold. Mm-hmm. So even if you change policy, you still have people in the system, in the structure that are going to do things that go against the policy. And then once they're called on it, as Jason was saying, then all of a sudden they're now, def- oh, no, I'm the victim. Yeah. I'm the, and like, they're oh, rallying around. do you think around. a large part of the, I guess, the, holding the system in place, the system that isn't working, even for cops, it's not keeping cops safe either, No, um, is the police unions. I mean, the guy that yes. Jason referenced is a guy, he's speaking on behalf of the police union. And to me, that was a prime example of, and, and when these cops do get fired or they do get disciplinary action against them, um, it seems like the police union gets it undone. And so they can right. get another job somewhere else or they can keep their job or come back into the same role and there's been all kinds of statistics on this. Um, but it, So it makes it hard to get rid of a bad apple, even for Ex- the officers who feel at risk because of the bad apple. But that, and that's the, the danger of focusing on the bad apples, again, doesn't show the larger picture. Mm-hmm. I'll give you two quick examples, um, one local and one kind of national. Um, there is no national database or tracking for police officers who have been accused or have been shown to violate policies, abuse, etc. So you would think the the person I will I say murdered George Floyd had seventeen violations before. Mm-hmm. Locally, one of the things that happened was um, another a, a version of this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we had a you know one of the police officers here say that they've never met a racist police officer so yeah, if that caught only, my uh, my ear when yeah. i was editing that too yeah. yeah so if you only focus on the bad apples mm-hmm. um then you if you clear out the bad apples you say everything's fixed and i love this that dr philip um atiba goff said the other night uh talking about even if in he was saying if or i uh, the, my take on what he says i should say mm-hmm. uh, even if you f- if we reform all the police departments 
that's not going to end structural and institutionalized racism and prejudice in the United States. We still have health. We still have housing. We still have employment. We still have education. We still have all these different things. And that's why I kept thinking about if you fix the bad apples, you still have other situations within the police departments and law enforcement that still perpetuate the status quo, well, the stereotypes a, and prejudice. You still have a system that's making things go rotten. Exactly. Right. right. Yep. The system creates the bad apples in a lot of ways. Yes. Listen, uh, thank you, Paul, for your segment. So now we he gets to have his say, and now we're going to give it to Amy in the next segment. Uh, we are talking about our, the changes that need to happen in uh, police and law enforcement and the systematic uh, issues that exist in our institutions here in the United States. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're joined by Dr. Paul White, Professor of Social Psychology at the U of U. And uh, we're talking about issues facing uh, America, as we, and, and particularly as it relates to police and law enforcement, as we watch protests going on around the country, and we see what we consider to be systemic problems in how police are handling uh, situations in certain circumstances, and uh, where it turns out that uh, many times, that they become what we consider perpetrators of crime rather than protectors from those people who would otherwise harm our society. Uh, first, I started out, then the uh, second segment we had Paul. Uh, now, Amy, take it away. My turn. So, so we each kind of picked the things that have been um, on our minds or bothering us. And uh, I had two, two things. And one of them, the first one is media diversity. Um, I feel like we all know, Jason and I, know very well um, the lack of diversity in our profession and we're really quick to point out uh, the lack of diversity in management of fortune 500 companies and in in government and in in um, you know education or any of these and in policing um, but I would say that as I've watched us cover these issues uh, the, and I say us in the collective media that's national and local I think the lack of diversity is 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 contributing to the institutional issues that we're dealing with, including the conversations that we're having, the terms that we're using, the history that we're unaware of, the um, the biases that people face. Right? Um, I'll give you one quick example. Um, we have we've run a few op eds and and done a few stories on white moms raising black kids here in Utah. And I think that's a, a valid discussion to have. I think the people who've shared those opinions have been, um, uh, you know, brave in doing so um, because they're exposing themselves and being pretty vulnerable. But I also feel like what we've ne de neglected to do as journalists is keep in mind that the people we sh who are really suffering, who the focus should be on and the conversation be should be guided by and coming from are black Americans because they are the targets of these institutional, uh, this institutional racism. And in our last segment, we're going to give some action items and some recommendations. And I, um, one of mine is to help people who are white understand what is meant by institutional racism. Because I've heard this a lot from a lot of my friends and family. How can an institution be racist? And I'll tell you, it can be racist because it was designed to be racist. It was designed <laughs> to work for certain people. And the example I always use is one that most of my friends and family can 
um, uh, relate to. Identify with you. Yeah, and that is that when I go to the gym, I hate using the machines because they're built for a six foot tall, 180 pound man. And they don't fit my body and they don't work for me. I cannot get the workout that it was designed to give. I have to adapt it. I have to figure out a, a little cheat here and there to be able to use those machines because they were not designed with me in mind and my life and what I need from a machine. And that's exactly how most people, except for you know white people, um, feel about most of the governmental systems from the coroner's uh, system to, uh, you know, the education system. I mean, how many times, Jason, have I come to you and said, hey, did you know about X? And right. it's something that every black American knows about, but most white people have never heard of. Right. <laughs> so that was my first rant. I don't know if you guys wanted to weigh in on the media. Jason. Well, I, I will say the media, obviously. Okay, so I, I look at these circumstances and when I watch the media portray issues, and again, I'm going to go to as it relates to uh, women and minorities. Mm -hmm. uh, they use different adjectives to describe white men, mm -hmm. but if the same thing happened in a white woman or a woman of color or a, a, a black person, they may use different things. It's sort of like the idea that when a, when a guy is tough, they, I mean, when a guy is strong, you know, they're mm -hmm. tough, but when a woman does it, she's something else. Aggressive or... Exactly. You know, yeah, they use, yeah. they're, they're yeah. being, uh, you know, too aggressive or how too, many, you know, this. How many times have I been asked, why am I an agitator? Right. Instead of my male colleagues being advocates, right? When when, mm -hmm. one, when one person is a terrorist, the other person is a, a, a what do you call it? A, a warrior. A, soldier, a freedom you know? fighter. Freedom yeah. fighter, that's right. Yeah. You know, so I, I find that we are very guilty of that. Yes. And, and we contribute to that in a great deal. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the way, since newsrooms, generally speaking, are pretty white, it's, and it's not just in Utah, I worked in Wisconsin and in Illinois, and it was similarly that way there, mm -hmm. where the people who cover it, they, they bring with them their implicit bias, and they use that in their language. They don't always know it that well, or recognize it that way, but that's mm -hmm. what happens, and that's you know, how it, it's translated. I think translated. like all of these situations, no one's meaning to do harm. The problem, well, sometimes they are. Well, I mean, I, maybe those are the, like we said before, those bad apples that are there, or the people who enjoy the, the, the way it's designed and they, and they see it and they don't want to undo it. But I think that the majority of us are blind to it. And we don't know that everybody, every professional quoted in an article, a business article, is a white man, right? We don't notice that. We j but it reinforces in our mind that that's what a professional is, is a white man. Well, you know, and, and, and one of the things I could say, I mean, to give you a quick definite, I mean, that's part of it. What you're talking about, Amy, is, you know, when an institution does, it doesn't have to be on purpose. <laughs> it can be just, that's how th things Benign work. Neglect. There, it was. Yes, it was. And I, and the example I always think of is in Kentucky, it used to be that you had to be six foot tall to be a state trooper. There's no real reason for it, but yeah. that just, that was just kind of how things were. No, my well, sister was denied, my sister was denied a four wheel drive vehicle in Alaska because they said she wasn't big enough to control that type of vehicle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you can have these things in place mm -hmm. that just keep perpetuating the situation, the circumstances. I, well, I don't the know standard if standard by which everybody's measured by. Right. And I don't know if y'all know, if, if you heard what happened in Pittsburgh, I think it was the Post-Gazette 
Um, there were a couple of that is just oh, don't even yeah. get me started. Yeah. <laughs> so there were a couple of African American um, reporters, yeah. the only two, who, by the way, in that newsroom, yeah. who who were part of a Pulitzer Prize winning story the coverage of the, um, of the, the synagogue. The synagogue yeah. yeah, that they were to, they were they're saying they were taken off of coverage of these marches and protests because it would show a bias. Because they're black, how could they cover black issues? Right, but a white person covering a black issue would not show bias. Mm-hmm. So Which do yeah. we all know. I'm at a, I feel like at a distinct disadvantage covering issues like that because I am not living in that. Like one woman told me when I went down to the Navajo Nation, like she lives there. I go home to my house, mm-hmm. you know, right. it's a difference in, you know, the connection to what you're covering. And so maybe a black journalist would be more, these things would resonate with them in their lives in a way that it doesn't with me. But all of us are trained to kind of understand these connections. Am I not allowed to cover issues that impact women like sexual assault or domestic violence? And, and Who better than you to be able to uh, report see, on that? We see it the same way, but there are definitely people who feel like, oh, you should have no connection and you should be. And so who gets to cover things? But I'll also say, we'll just quickly throw in, Amy, it's not, it's not that you should. It's not that you have to cover those only also. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. There's, there's two extremes. But before my time is up, I really want to just make one point, and that is for those of you who are distraught that they're ripping statues of slave traders and Christopher Columbus down. The slave trader guy was in the UK, but the Christopher Columbus got beheaded here in the US. Um, I would say this, there is a huge, huge difference between banning books and movies and and trying to uh, erase stories that we told ourselves because that is how we oriented ourselves. That is how we created our own realities, is telling stories. That's a different thing than ripping down monuments to people to whom we probably should never have um, erected a monument. And so I think there are reasons there are thousands of statues to the Confederacy, which, let's be honest, that's a treasonous act. They tried to destroy this country. Um, There are reasons for that. And they are not to teach you history. They are to intimidate and remind people who, who's in charge. That's what they're there for. And if you want to know history, I, I absolutely look at books and movies that maybe, maybe they are racist. Maybe they're sexist. I, you know, we can have those discussions. But there's a big difference. And don't equate the two things. And don't get carried away. We don't need to, like, ban anything and everything we need to change things that are causing, um, as John, um, uh, who, used, who used to do The Daily Show before Trevor Noah? Uh, John, John Stewart. John Stewart. John Stewart said it best after the Charlottes, uh, the Charlottesville, Charlottesville uh, murder at the church, at the black church, the Amy church. He said, they drive around on streets named after Confederate generals. They go to schools named after, you know, Confederate heroes. What do you expect the message to be to them? That is unfair. And that that is not history. That is intimidation. And it was uh, South Carolina. So, uh, listen, we got to continue our discussion. And hopefully in the next segment, we're going to have some solutions. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to the Loudmouth 
Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with my partner, Amy Donaldson. And today we're speaking with Dr. Paul White, a U of U professor of social psychology. And we're, we each had our segment of uh, talking about things that have kind of been, uh, you know, of issue for us of the uh, last few days. And now we hope to give some call to action here. And I'm going to start out since I was in the first segment. And so we know that uh, for me, the issue has been uh, the idea that police, uh, policing in America has been troublesome, particularly as it relates to how uh, blacks and um, brown people are being treated by them. And so in that regard, I feel as though that uh, we, we have to figure out a way to, to do something that uh, gives us a sense of security for everybody. So I would suggest that we bring back community policing. And by that I mean actually having uh, police officers and uh, police, uh, I don't know, stations somehow, or at least uh, maybe many stations in communities so that you can see an officer walk by, maybe talk to them, get to know them. Bring back the humanity, the interpersonal interaction, so that when you come across somebody, they, they aren't necessarily just because they may have been involved in some kind of activity. If you have a sense that these people belong to your community and, uh, and they are part of where you live, then you have less reason to fear them, you have less reason to think of them as the other, and you have more reason to consider the, the way they live is the way you live. And they live in the community you live, and we all want to make it the best place we can for everybody, not just for certain people. And I don't, I don't hate all police officers, that's a, that's a ridiculous statement to make, obviously. But I, I am wary of uh, police because I see how I can be treated because of um, because the way I look yeah. and the way they perceive me. And that makes it difficult for me to have a connection with them uh, unless I have a chance to speak with them, right? And so when I, when, I, when I was growing up, we had a police station in our neighborhood. I never feared the police then. I used to go in there all the time. So the, if we can create a connection that that is kind of uh, dissipated over the years, where police officers are mostly in cars now, uh, then there may be this opportunity for uh, people to become uh, more personally invested in the communities in which they live and uh, create a better connection between police and the people they are, uh, you know, sworn to serve. And that, they, and I believe they want to serve. By the way, you know, mm -hmm. they, every, we all want a better community. And then uh, the one other thing is uh, police officers who see. Uh, bad stuff happening. They got to learn how to de-escalate, and they got to learn how to intervene. Because you you cannot ask for people to uh, trust you with their lives if you don't care about their lives. When you see one of your fellow officers doing something you know is wrong, and if you don't believe is wrong, then you need another job. Because there should not be any more situations like we saw with George Floyd or Rodney King or any of those other kinds of crazy circumstances or the other uh, fellow in Buffalo who was pushed down for no good reason and uh, literally injured uh, in, a, in a criminal fashion. That that has to stop. Okay, Paul, you're up. Okay, I, it would, I would, I have to do education stuff because um, that's just who I am. So there's a whole, I have a whole list of things, um, but they're simple in some ways. So for those who like to read, here are some books. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Who and she gives great references talking about uh, mass incarceration, law enforcement issues, 
Along those same lines is A Colony in a Nation by Chris Hayes. Yes, the MSNBC um, host, Chris Hayes, again, does a great job of talking about how policing and law enforcement and criminal justice is done and also touches on white privilege issues right off the bat, which is a, in a, in a very unique way. It's just very good. Um, the last book I will recommend is how to be an anti-racist. This is Dr. Ibram um, Ken, X. Kendi. Um, this is the, he, cause he, it's even though I don't agree with everything he says, because it's just a different social science perspective um, from mine. But the core message is it's not enough to just to say I'm not prejudiced or I'm not racist. He, you have to actually be anti-prejudice, anti-racist, actually working to dismantle um, the systems to to work against the things in your own life. Also with reading, I would say, I always tell people, go read, it's called A Call for Unity, is what you you can look for. It's the 1963 letter from pastors in Birmingham. That, then go read Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's, it's A Call to Unity is what spawned the, his letter from a Birmingham jail and it is just brilliant, beautiful in what you can think, what you can do. Um, okay, so that's reading. If you don't want to read, there's things you can watch. Look up Eyes on the Prize series. It was done by PBS. There's two gigantic sections. Fabulous, fabulous. Um, yeah, and fi find, if you can find both sections, one covers the civil rights movement that most people think of in the 50s and 60s, and there's an and there's a one that co goes from the 70s through the 80s, I do believe. Find that if you can find both series, and I think each is like six or seven parts. Um, films, if you don't want to just sit and watch films and binge the or binge Eyes on the Prize, 13th, Ava DuVernay's um, excellent film on again kind of tying into um, policing and law enforcement. I Am Not Your Negro, the documentary about James Baldwin, Baldwin. which is great, um, and the Central Park Five. Uh, this is a documentary that was done by Ken Burns and his daughter Sarah Burns on what happened with Central Park Five, and that's part of why I have my feelings I do about our president. Um, it goes back to that. And the last thing I'll mention is thinking terms and um, in language. This comes from Alicia Garza, who was one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. I love that she said the way she put this, and I first heard it on um, Politically Reactive, the show a podcast by Harry Conaballo and W. Kamal Bell. She talked about, I don't want allies. I want co-conspirators. I want people who have skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And when you think about a co-conspirator, because it's not, ju it's not just saying here's my label co-conspirator is action you're doing something you're you're changing your life you're working for others you're working with others it's not that i'm trying to lead it's not that i'm just following i am trying to be there right with you so try to say co-conspirator instead of i want to be an ally okay i love those uh so All right, my, Amy. So my favorite. I'm Real actually, yeah, reading. So um, I recommend the the movie Blind Spotting. Um, 
I Jason knows it's one of my favorites. I recommended it to I everyone. Just watch it again last week. Yeah, it's an, a, a really chilling, anxiety-inducing, and life-changing movie. And I wish it got more love. Uh, but it came out when there were a lot of race movies. So Blind Spotting would be the movie I recommend. Books I recommend. Beloved. Uh, the reason I'm recommending Beloved. I mean, I Jason knows also I'm a huge Toni Morrison fan, but. And I recommend reading everything she's ever written, frankly. Yes. But I recommend Beloved, and you start there because it's the book that made me understand the real, uh, how horrific slavery must have been. Um, and I won't tell you more than that because I'll give the story away, but read the book. And it's based on real, real Absolute, facts. Absolutely, yes. Because that was in Cincinnati in northern Kentucky. Exactly. And that, which makes, which is part of what makes it horrifyingly like like that's why you get it right um because some of us can't relate to that time and place and and those experiences um which is why lies get perpetuated but i would also say uh the other book i recommend uh, to everyone cadaver king and the country dentist because it describes institutional racism in tell in the telling of uh, some wrongly convicted people in Mississippi. So it dissects the Mississippi system, but it talks about the racist systems that were in place and how they replaced, you know, the the slavery and the and lynching. And it's, um, in my opinion, if you don't believe that institutions can be racist, read that book. It will change your mind. Um, and then I would say, I would caution you and say that this isn't, Whatever comes from this, and I think some good things are coming from this, I think we're having a reckoning, a moment of reckoning as a country. And individually, I would recommend hiking, meditating, doing some things for yourself that make sure you can stay in and be a conspirator through this tough time. Um, but I also say that you don't forget that uh, some people have the option to escape and some people don't. And um, we need to make sure we all stay in the game. And don't forget about those kids on the border, the DACA kids, and the immigration issue, because our race issues, they may be rooted in slavery and what we did to black Americans and, and to natives who lived on this continent before we got here, but they, they, they touch everything, including how we address immigration. And between 2014 and 2018, more than 4,500 kids reported being sexually molested or abused in the care of our government. And I would just end with that and say, we got some work to do. So let's get healthy and get going. Amen. Amen. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ADONSports and at Jason Lee One. Our show's Twitter handle is at VOR Podcast. Check out our Facebook page. And you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our show on in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.